listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. We are going to be, as Gardner read in Matthew chapter 2 today, again, if you're our guest, we are working our way through the book of Matthew. And in this Advent season, week three is Gaudete in Latin, or Gaudet, if you're from Statesboro, uh, you know, however you pronounce it, where you put the, the accent on which syllable. Um, it's a Latin word that just means rejoice, rejoice. I was watching uh, this past week, I've been working my way through some of the Tom Clancy movies, and I finished The Hunt for Red October, Sean Connery. The great, the great Sean Connery. Uh, and, and that movie does what so many uh, books and stories do. It presents you a character in the beginning where you think this is the bad guy. This is the bad guy. This is the enemy. This is the antagonist. And, and, it, and it pulls the old bait and switch where the, the one who you think is the bad guy in the end is actually the good guy, right? It's the one that you you cheer for, that you root for, that you want to follow. And this is common through movies and stories. And so if you go to the, the very common Home Alone, right? Classic Christmas movie. There's the old grandpa who's grumpy and always angry and you're scared of him. He's always carrying like a shovel or something that's going to beat you with it. But in the end, he's just a sweet old grandpa and he saves the day, right? It's very common. Or you go to uh, the classic Jurassic Park where the, the T-Rex, he's a, just a mistaken dinosaur, right? Yeah, he's eating some people, but in the end... He's the good guy. He saves the day, right? Or, or the old Terminator, right? Now, the first Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger, is bad. But in all the rest of them, he's really a good guy. He's, he's a good robot who saves the day. And th- this narrative that we're going to look at today, the original audience, remember who the Gospel of Matthew is written to? Who is it written to? Israel, to a Jewish audience. To a Jewish audience, they're going to hear th- the people in this narrative, they're going to think, bad guy bad guy, right? Enemy. But really, in the end, we're going to see, no, no, no. That, those who you think are the, the bad guys are actually the good guys, and those who you think are the good guys are actually the bad guys. And this is really a narrative. It's a story where it, it's a contrast of two groups of people. And the ones you expect to get it, the ones who you expect to have joy at the coming of the Messiah have none. And the ones who you would expect not even be involved and engaged in this process, they're the ones that actually have joy. And the question we want to ask today is, why? Why does this group that should have joy have none? Why does this group that shouldn't even be in the story have joy? Why are they even there? And here's why it's important for us. Because the ones you think have joy that don't, that could be us. We could be the ones that you think would have joy. After all, you're in church. Whether you were drug here, invited here, tricked to be here, or you chose to be here, you should be the one that has joy because you're here and we're celebrating the pink candle today. But really, do you? Do I? And so we want to see why this group, who who on the surface shouldn't be joyful, really are. And why those who should have joy don't, as we work through this narrative. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 12, as Gardner read. And again, we've been working through Matthew. Uh, It's written to the nation of Israel to present Jesus as the promised Messiah, as the king. So chapter one, we saw hope. Why? Because he fits, 
He's, he fits the right family. He comes from David. He comes from the line of Judah. He comes from Isaac. He comes from Abraham. He has the right genealogy to be king. Chapter two, we saw his miraculous birth, the miraculous birth of the Prince of Peace. And in chapter three, we're gonna see those who come and worship and who has joy and who really doesn't and why. So let me read all of our text and we'll kind of unpack it. And I know this is a familiar story. I get it. You grew up in the church. You, you, you colored in the, you know, the lines. You had the Magi little picture and all that. But try to hear it with fresh eyes. Try to see it with, uh, uh, hear it with fresh ears and fresh eyes because this is a great, it's my favorite of all the Christmas narratives because this is us. If you are a Gentile this morning, right? And we have some Jewish believers, but if you are a non-Jew, this is your story. This is us. This is where we come into play. Verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men, or the Greek word magi, from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so the text starts and it says this. Now after, that's a key word. You start to circle that word, right, in your Bible. After Jesus was born. Here's why. Because we have this view. We get our theology from Target or, or, or uh, from our Christmas cards, right? So we have this view of like, okay, there was a line at the stable and it's like Disney World, right? First come the shepherds, their turn to ride and they go in and woo, they do their thing. And up next, magi come in and they come in. That's not the way it happened, right? This is after, when the magi show up, they're in a house. When the shepherds show up, they're still in uh, a stable or someplace where there's a manger. There's a, there's a time gap. We don't know how far. Estimates are between six months to two, to two years. We just know it's after, after, right? And so if you want, I know some of you have your little nativities at your house, and we've said this before, and some of you have actually done it. You want to be accurate with your nativity, then take your little magi and take them and put them in your neighbor's front yard, because that's more accurate. It will be a great talking piece. It can be like, why are my magi? Oh, this is, we're just trying to be biblically accurate here. That's why, right? Because the magi are years away, months away, hundreds of miles away when Jesus is born. Not sure how, how long, but at least six months, probably up till two years, right? So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea and the days of Herod, now we're introduced to the different players in this story. And the first player is Herod the king. 
And some of you get confused when you see Herod's name because there's Herods all throughout the New Testament. That's because there's multiple Herods. Herod is like a title. It's like Pharaoh, right? The Herod that we're talking about here, his, this is called Herod the Great, as he's known as. He reigned from 37 BC to 4 BC, which tells me, by the way, that Jesus was not born in the year zero, right? Because Herod's dead in 4 BC, so Jesus must have been born before 4 BC, probably 5 or 6 BC, if you want to be, we don't know for sure. But this man was, uh, he's called the king. He's actually not a king because there's only one king and the king is Caesar, but he's kind of the puppet king of Israel. And the reason he's appointed is because he's the right guy for, the, for that time. Israel is known to be rebel rousers, troublemakers. And so Caesar puts Herod the great over them because he is a fierce and harsh man. He is brutal. So brutal, he kills many of his wives and kids because he's scared they're gonna take the throne. When he is on his deathbed, he, he tells them to gather a bunch of men in Jericho. And as soon as he dies, to kill all these, these men so that somebody's actually sad that he's gone. That's the kind of guy he is, right? That is who is in charge in Jerusalem. That is Herod the Great. But he was a shrewd leader as well. Not only was he extremely wealthy, he's probably, estimates say he's the second wealthiest man in that time, second only to Caesar himself. He is evil, but he's also shrewd. It's one of the ways he kept kind of the peace. He was a huge builder. He's a developer, right? He built palaces and places and rebuilt. One of the things he did to keep the, the Jews happy was he rebuilt or expand upon the temple of that day. The temple was real small when Haggai and all those folks came back and he expanded it. Here's a model of what it may have looked like or similar. It was ginormous. It was extravagant. This is the very temple that Jesus would have been presented in, that Jesus would have taught in and flipped tables in. This is the temple that the early church would have met at Solomon's portico, right? It was a, it was a site to be seen. It was destroyed in 70 AD, but it was one of the things he did to keep people happy. Uh, he was a, a, it's just a shrewd, brutal, wicked leader. So he's the first player, Herod the king. Uh, the second one is the Magi. So in the days of Herod the king, and he wasn't actually a Jew, he was actually an Edomite, which was the sworn enemy of Israel, because remember Edomites went all the way back to the beginning with Abraham and Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And Edom came from Esau. And these two had been fighting since the wound. So these were not friendly people. You can imagine how Israel felt with an Edomite ruling, right? So that's the first guy. Second one is the Magi. And Matthew wants you to, he, he draws you in. He says, behold, see, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Who are the Magi? That is the question, right? Uh, the text just says they're from the east. That's about all we get. So again, let's not get our theology from Tarjay, all right? So there, it doesn't, it, it, there, first of all, we know this. They were not kings. So we can throw that song out. We three, not kings uh, from Orient. Actually, we don't even know how many there were. So we can throw out the, we, we don't know how many not kings from Orient are, right? Uh, we know there was three gifts. We don't know how many there actually were. There could be two. There could be 32. There could be 132. We have no clue. We just know that there was three gifts. Here's what we do know, do know about them. The Magi were part of a, a priestly group of folks from the Medo-Persia Empire, uh, far from the east, probably from the Babylon area, eight, 900 miles to the east. And they were experts in science and history 
and business, economics, and big, big time, they were interested in the stars, astrology and astronomy. And they were big in interpreting dreams, and they were involved in the coronation process of kings, right? And so when the original audience hears this, magi, what they originally immediately think is sketchy. These guys are sketch, right? They're involved in all sorts of stuff that the Old Testament says they shouldn't be involved in. The occult, dreams, visions, all these things. What they expect is the magi are the bad guys. That's what they expect. These guys are the rejects. And so it's super interesting when you think about the birth narratives of Jesus, the two groups of people that are there, the shepherds, which are the outcasts of Israel, and then these outsider Gentiles, right? Those who are the first to see and come at the arrival of the Messiah. So magi from the east come to Jerusalem. Again, what happens next? They come to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Very unique phrasing, right? Notice it. It says, where is he who has been born king? See, normally you're not born the king. You're born the prince. Even Simba knows that you have to wait to be king, okay? Right? Some of you got that. First service was asleep, but you get it. I appreciate that. All right. He's born the king, right? Unique phrasing. And how do they, where do they get this from? He says, for we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Now, what's going on there? These stargazing, astrologists, palm reading, dream interpreting, king makers, one day they go outside at night and there is something in the sky that was not there the night before. And somehow they put two and two together. The king has been born in Israel. And so they pack up the bags and they head east. He said, how in, how in the world did they, where did they get that from? I have no idea. Actually, I have a, a little, I have a hunch. Can't prove it, but here's my best guess. Uh, about 500 years earlier, there was a prophet from this group of magi. His name was Belshazzar. And he prophesied that Messiah would come and he gave an exact time frame of when that would happen. You know him by his Hebrew name, Daniel. But Daniel was one of these people, right? And he prophesied in Daniel 9 about when the arrival of the Messiah would come. And my guess is that these men had that prophecy. They had Daniel's book and they had some of the other Old Testament. There's a prophecy in the book of Numbers written by a guy named Balaam, who was actually a, not a, a Jewish prophet. He was a false prophet, but God used him to prophesy that a star will come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and it will crush Moab. And so uh, my best guess is they put these things together. They see something new. They realize it's about time and they're like, it's happened. Just like Belshazzar, AKA Daniel said. And so what do they do? They get on their camels, maybe, probably not, more likely horses, and they go to Jerusalem. Now, why did they go to Jerusalem? Why Jerusalem? Because I know some of you are thinking, well, because the star led them to Jerusalem. No, the star did not lead them to Jerusalem. Don't get your theology from Target. The star shows up and then what happens? It goes away. And they go to Jerusalem. Why? Because if there's a king born in Israel, the logical place is for him to be where? In the capital, where the king is. That is why they go to Jerusalem. And so when they show up, they're saying what? Go back to verse three. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And everybody is all thrown into just chaos, right? Because you got 
remember, there's not just three of them. If three guys with 1968 beards show up in a town, no one cares. But you have history reports, whether it's accurate or not, because it's not biblical, biblical history, but it's extra biblical history. But there's reports that they came not just with three guys, they came with a couple hundred troops on Persian steeds riding in. And here's this group of people that are known for, for making kings and interpreting dreams. And they show up and they start asking people, where's the new king? Where's the new king? Where's the new king? Where's the new king? And everyone's like, did Herod have a baby? Because I didn't hear anything about Herod having a baby. And it gets back to Herod. And Herod does not want a new king. Herod does not need a new king. Herod likes to be king. And so everyone is freaking out because it's like, what is Herod going to do now? Because he is not against killing people. That's why there's chaos in the city. And so what Herod does is he gets all the pastors, all the scribes, all the Pharisees, all the guys that know the Old Testament. And he says this, where is the Christ to be born? Think about that. He hears, where's the, where's the new king who has been born king? Where does he immediately go in his mind? He goes to the Messiah. That's where he goes. He goes right to the Messiah. He knows exactly what they're asking. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And even more telling is that the scribes and the Pharisees, they know. They say, oh, there's a verse. It's in Micah, chapter five, verse two. It says this, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The prophets say that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, which by the way, don't miss the miracle of that. The book of Micah is written 700 years before Jesus shows up, 700 years and prophesies that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. And think about all that had to happen for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. His mother, Mary and dad are from where? Nazareth. So normally you would be born in the town you're from, but God moves upon the most powerful man in the world at that time, Caesar Augustus. So he says, okay, I think I need some more money. So let's have a census. And the census goes out and you have to go to your hometown where your family's from. So Joseph and Mary, because they're from the line of David, have to go to the house of David, the house, which is Bethlehem. So they got to move at just the right time in history to get to Bethlehem. So she gives birth at the right time and he's there. It's a miracle. That's just one of many miracles of Jesus's birth in the prophecies. But they know where it's supposed to happen. It happens in Bethlehem. And so he says, says, where? Bethlehem. And so he then tells them, um, go. He summons the wise men. He says, go. He has a little secret meet and greet. Uh, You guys go down there. When did this happen? When did did this star appear? And they're like, eh, it was December uh, 25th. December 25th is when it happened. It, It didn't happen on December 25th. Well, it could have. There's a one in 360 chance that it happened. Uh, the Jewish calendar is 360 days. It's a one in 360 chance it happened on December 25th, right? Probably not. Probably more of a springtime thing, but we never know. But whatever it is, they're like, yeah, it happened about 16 months ago. We saw it. He says, okay, Bethlehem is just five miles down the road. You guys go down. It's a 10K down the road. Get down the road. You find him. Text me the address because I want to worship him too. I want to come after you. And the wise men, who are apparently not so wise, because they're fooled. They believe him. It's going to take God intervening in the end of the narrative uh, for them to, to see what God's really doing, right? And so they go. So after listening to the king, they went on their way. And here's Matthew again, and he's trying to draw you in. Behold, they're just walking down the hills. Again, it's a short little horse ride, camel ride, whatever. And as soon as they're walking, the star appears again, Right? It started that they saw originally eight, nine, 10 months earlier, and it comes to rest over where the, where the baby is, where the child is. Now, 
There's all sorts of stuff out there on what the star was and it was Jupiter who lines with Saturn and it's this and it was a comet and it was a supernova and it was the Death Star. It was all, you can read about it all online, right? Okay, let me just tell you, I have no clue what it was. But my, my best guess is it's not Jupiter and it's not Saturn. Jupiter doesn't just show up and go away. The Death Star does, but that's, that's probably not what it was, Okay. I know that was a long time ago in a, far, a galaxy far, far away. Not this galaxy, okay? My best guess is that was another one of the miracles around the birth of Christ. If God can lead the people of Israel from a pillar in the day and a fire at night, he can certainly have this. And, and I know there's some if within uh, our, our midst that are like, well, if, it's, if you don't have a natural explanation, then you just, you, it's hard for you to, to grasp and buy it. I hear you, but if, if that's where you land, you always have to have some natural explanation. You have a real hard time with Christianity because what do you do with the resurrection? There's nothing natural about a man who is dead and on the third day rises, all right? So I'm okay with the God of the universe having some kind of ball of fire or light resting over this house and highlighting where the child is. But notice their response. This is key. This is what Matthew wants you to see. When they saw the star, they what? They rejoiced. And it's in the original language, it's like super emphatic. It's kind of emphatic in English, but it's like they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like they had joy, 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 joyful joy. He wants you to see that this group of dudes are the joyful ones in the text, that they have joy. Where is Herod, where is the religious leaders, the ones who know the Bible and know the prophecies and know the Messiah? You would think, you would think that these these scribes and Pharisees, they've been waiting for Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years. You would think that this group of people comes and say, we we heard the Messiah is born. You would think they would at least be like, hey, we're going to go with you. We'll go check it out. Or, oh, it's kind of tired. It's late in the afternoon. We'll send the intern. He can swing around Bethlehem, pick up a Starbucks, and just check it out on the way in. Then you'd think they'd do something. And there's nothing. The ones who have joy are the ones who don't even belong there. And the ones that should be there looking, searching, are absent. That's, that's part of what's going on here. They rejoiced with great joy, the least likely people. And so, Going into the house, they saw the child. The word child there is not the same word as used in Luke for infant. This is a child. Six months old, 12 months old, 14 months old. We don't know how old. Somewhere in that world. But here, again, I want you to see this. Okay, they go into this house. And don't think a little, oh, little town of Bethlehem, a little nice house on the you know, picket fence. Little, you're talking about a, you know, four or 500 square foot room. You can imagine hundreds of folks show up on steeds in this little town. It was a little town. There's not a lot of people living in Bethlehem. This is a town. This is Bloom, Bloomingdale is what this is, all right? It, and so all these people show up. They go into this house, and, and there's this 14-month child, probably a little timid. Maybe he's got a little stick, swinging the stick. Maybe he's hiding behind his mama's leg because all these people have just come into the room. Maybe just learning to walk and say, Dada, mama, right? But here's what I want you to grasp. This is the miracle of this story. That little boy, he is the creator of the universe. Think about that. That in him, all things were created, 
thrones, rulers, authorities, visible and invisible. All things were created by him. All things were created for him. He is begotten, not made. He is the God of gods. He is light of lights. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. In that 14-month-old, staggering, stumbling, wearing a little diaper, hiding behind his mom, that is your God. Isn't that, isn't that, I can't, you can't fathom it, right? And so what do they do? They fall down and worship it. It's redundant in Hebrew because the word proskuneo, which is the word for worship, it means to fall down and worship. So they falling down, they fall down. And I want you to think, here's a group of highly established, authoritative, king-making, rich, wealthy, respected men. This is a congressman or a senator, a dignitary. And they come into this little room with a dirt floor and they get on their faces in front of a little 13-month-old baby and they worship him. Think about that. On their faces in the dirt, right? It's a, it's a, it's a phenomenal scene. And the, the original audience has got to be thinking, what are, these de- what are these dudes doing with our king? That's our Messiah, even though they don't really like him because they reject him. But, but why are they even there? Why are they even there? Because there's no Hebrews there. There's no scribes and Pharisees and important Jewish people there. Go to pagans. But Matthew has given you a sneak peek on what God has been doing since the beginning, that Jesus is not just the Messiah for Israel. He is. But he is the Messiah of the nations. He's the Messiah of all. The book begins with Gentiles worshiping at the feet of Jesus. How's the book end? What does Jesus say? Go and make disciples of what? All nations. And you are here, most of you, as a Gentile, because of these guys. This is what God has been doing from the beginning. He's not just a Jewish king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And so they worship and they open their treasures. And I love that word, treasure boxes, some translations say. What is a treasure? Something that you value, right? Something that has high value to you. And when you give something of high value to someone else, what are you saying? That this is valuable to me and this is costly, but you are worth more than this to me, right? So if your time you're a busy man, you're a busy woman, your time is valuable. And when you take your time and you give it to someone else, what you're saying is, this is valuable to me, but you're more valuable. When you give your finances or your stuff to someone else, you're saying, yeah, I could use this to spend something for me on Amazon, but you are more valuable, right? When you use your gifts and abilities to not prop yourself up, to prop someone else up, you're saying, you are more valuable. And that's what they're doing. They're saying, you have value. And they offer three gifts. Not real fitting for a 12-month-old child. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But they're going to be super helpful when Joseph has to run to Egypt in a, in a couple days because he's broke as a joke and he knows no one. So how is he going to get a house and food? These gifts, right? And it's, it's doubtful that the Magi knew, I think, the significance of it. These are just valuable things in his day. But I think Matthew is highlighting them because there's significance of who Jesus is, even from the beginning. What is gold fit for? Gold is fit for a king. Frankincense is something we saw when we studied Exodus. It's used in the tabernacle and in the temple and offering incense to God. And it's something the priest does. Jesus is a king, but he's also our high priest. And myrrh is the weirdest of them all. 
because myrrh is basically embalming fluid. Merry Christmas. Here's some embalming fluid, right? And and it shows up twice in Jesus's life after this. When he's on the cross, he's offered wine mixed with myrrh to dull the pain, which he refuses. And then when he dies, he is buried with spices and myrrh because it was used in the embalming process. And think about this. When Jesus is risen on the third day, he's covered in in almost 100 pounds of spices and myrrh. And when his lungs, for the first time, fill with oxygen again, what is the first thing he is going to smell? It's myrrh. Significant of his death and of his burial. These are what Jesus is. He's the king. He's our high priest. He is our substitute. He's our sacrifice. Did they know it? Probably not. Do we see it? I hope so. I hope so. So they offer it. They're there for, I don't know how long, 20 minutes, an hour. Who knows? Right? All that travel for this one moment. And then they go to bed. Right? And they're all intents and purposes are going back to, to Jerusalem to tell Herod. But see, they go to bed and they're all warned in a dream not to return. So they, they leave. And so they all go to bed that night, whether it's three of them, whether it's 103 of them. And they wake up and they're like, dude, I had the weirdest dream. Uh, it, it was an angel. And he said, we should not go back to Herod. And he goes, you are kidding me. I had the same dream. I did too. And then this guy over here is like, no, I, I dream that Georgia is going to win national championship. But I, I, well, that's a weirder dream, right? And so what do they do? They go the other way. And by the time Herod figures it out, it's too late. They're across the desert. We don't see him again. So you, you see how Matthew, what is doing here. The group that you think, you expect is not gonna have joy are the ones that do have joy, the ones that should have joy, the ones that should be involved, the ones that should be happy, could care less. And the question we gotta go to is why? So why does this group have it and why does this group not, Right? That's what I want to talk about. Because again, we're the ones who are supposed to have it. And, and the reality for some of us, and myself included, sometimes we just don't have it. Sometimes we don't have it. And when we're talking about joy, understand joy is not just happiness. Because I think we think joy means happiness. Happiness could be a part of joy, but it's got to be deeper than that because happiness is dependent on circumstances. And circumstances are up and down. And, and, and joy cannot be happiness because James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, consider it all joy... When you encounter trials, trials are not good things, they're bad things, but you can still have joy even when circumstances are bad. So it's, it's deeper than that. It's an inner peace and satisfaction and rest based on something deeper than just what's going on around you. And I think as we contrast these two groups, we'll see what it's based on, right? So here's the first thing I want you to see, and this is the biggie, right? And it's a relationship to God. Herod and the Magi and their relationship with God. Herod fights God. The Magi seek God. You see that in the text, right? Herod fights, the Magi seek. And I think what comes to mind when I think about the Magi is is a parable that the Lord Jesus is gonna tell later in this book, we'll see it, in Matthew 13, where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has so he can get the field. Everything he has, he sells because this is more valuable. Here's a group of people, they sacrifice everything. They, I mean, your time away from home, road trip. Who, I mean, some of you, you like road trips. I like my home. I like my couch. I don't like going to Publix, let alone anywhere else. I'm gonna be away from family for a year, a year and a half, two years. Not to mention the cost of feeding all these soldiers and all these animals and the time. That's a costly trip. For them, it is worth it. Why? Because this is more valuable. 
What they understand is what David says in the psalm, that at your right hand are pleasures evermore. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And so here's the thing. You wanna be a joyful person. You wanna have joy, then you walk with God. Because the fruit of the spirit is joy, right? Not only is he the source of joy, he is the place of joy. And you gotta understand that, that this, there's a myth that some of us have bought and we, don't, we know it's not true, but we kind of buy it, is that, that God is not for your joy. No, God is pro-joy. God is for your joy, right? And some of you think, no, it's not true. God is a killjoy. That is a lie that Satan has been telling you since Genesis chapter three when he went to Adam and Eve and says, God is not for you, he's against you. If he was for you, he'd want this. You gotta go get your joy. You gotta go get what you want If you're gonna be joyful, you have to have this. It is a lie. Young people, listen to me. I know you think, well, you know, I'll I'll do the God thing when I get out of college. I'll do the God thing after I get married. I'll do that. But right now I gotta get this because this will make me happy. It is a lie. If if God is anti-joy, then Jesus is a liar. And if Jesus is a liar, he is not God. Because this is what he tells us. I've spoken these things to you that you may have my joy in you and that your joy will be full. So Jesus is saying, I want you to have my joy and be full of my joy. If God is anti-joy, then Jesus is wrong. You, if you want an example of someone who gets it, wants it their way, look at Herod. All he's doing is his way. He is resisting God. He is so arrogant that he thinks, he knows this is Messiah. He says, where's the Messiah gonna be born? He understands this is a God thing. He in his arrogance thinks that he can actually stop God. That he can somehow thwart that which has been promised since Genesis chapter three. And he is miserable and angry and frustrated. And in the end, he loses, right? And I wonder how many of us in this room the reason why you have no joy and you're fighting and you're fighting is because you just keep sticking your hand in God's face and say, no, later, no, my way, no, I'm gonna do this, no, 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 I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. And you are just gonna end up miserable. You're gonna end up miserable. You're gonna end up frustrated because you can't fight God and win because he is the source of joy. He is the place of joy. He is for your joy. This is why uh, David after he repents of his sin of adultery and murder, what does he say? Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. You know why? Sin never brings joy. It, just, you, it will never bring you joy. It's gonna promise things it cannot deliver. It just will. It cannot do what only God can do. So some of you are miserable and you have no joy because you keep fighting and resisting and saying, no God, no God, no God, no God. And he's giving you what you want and, and it's not bringing you what you think. Until you humble yourself and seek after him. And some of you are like, well, I'm not against God. I'm, not, I'm kind of a, I'm not against God. I'm not for God. I'm kind of a spiritual, spiritual Switzerland. I'm kind of neutral. I'm in the middle. And Jesus would say, if you're not for me, you're actually against me. There is no neutrality. You are either for him or against him. And I would say, if you want joy, inner peace, satisfaction, expectation, it comes from one place, the one who says, I've come to give life, give it life abundantly. Doesn't mean easy, doesn't mean everything always goes your way, but there is joy because you know, I know, despite 
anything else is going, that I am loved by God and nothing can separate me from the love of God. That I know that even though I am a wreck of a husband and a wreck of a father sometimes and an awful pastor and just a, uh, just a scoundrel, that my sins have been forgiven because of what Christ has done. I know this, right? And I can have joy that no matter what happens to me, that I will be with him forever and ever. Why? Because of what Christ has done. See, that's, that's, where you, that's where the source of joy is. And if you don't have that, I don't care what you get, you're not gonna have lasting joy. Magi seek God and they find him and they have joy. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing, and it's related to stuff, which is something that we think is gonna bring joy. Herod is about preservation of stuff. The Magi are about giving of stuff, aren't they? Herod is worried about what it's gonna cost. This king is gonna take what's mine. Jesus is a threat to his kingdom. And Jesus is a threat to his kingdom, but not the kingdom he thinks. He thinks he's gonna lose his throne, his money, his power, his this. And that's not what, Jesus doesn't need his throne. Jesus is born king, remember? He doesn't need his throne, right? But all he cares about is is what I'm gonna lose, what it's gonna cost me. And so I gotta fight to keep what I have. He is a study, a case study, a perfect example of someone who should be joyful and happy because he has everything that the world wants. He's got power, he's got money, he's got authority, he's got respect, he's got houses, he's got everything, and he's miserable. He's miserable because he's just worried about losing it. And the sad thing is two to three years later, he does because he dies and it goes to his son who loses it and it goes to his son, right? This is the Bill Gates, this is the Jeff Bozos. He's got everything and he is miserable. And some of you think, you wouldn't say it because you're in church, but if you can just get fill in the blank, I'll be happy finally. I get into law school, I get that job, I get that promotion, I get married, I have a kid, I get X, Y, Z, fill in the blank, this many likes, this, if I get there, I will finally have that joy. And here's the thing I wanna tell you. If, if that's where you are, the pursuit of that will destroy you. Especially if you don't get what you think you want. And what will be even worse is you pursuing it and then you get it and then you realize after a short time, this is not, this isn't, I wasted years thinking this was gonna be where it's at and I got it. And it's, it was new for a week and now it's not. This is why I pray. I am praying for the University of Georgia to win the national title, believe it or not. Here's why. Because I want you to know that even if they win it, some of you are still gonna be miserable. You think you're gonna be happy if they finally win. Guess what's gonna happen next fall? Some of you are gonna be mad again because Kirby did this and I can't believe he lost to Florida. You're gonna be mad, it won't matter. You'll be happy for a week and then you're gonna win another one and then another one because that's the nature of it. And I'm sick of y'all complaining, so I pray that y'all win so you know that you're not gonna be happy just because they win. You will be for one Sunday. And then the next one you won't care, right? Because it's fleeting. It's, it's, it's emptiness in the end. Until you realize, like Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Until you realize that at your right hand are pleasures evermore, in your presence is joy, right? The Magi, they recognize this, and so they're willing to give and sacrifice and go. I, I can't imagine the sacrifice, but 
but they have nothing but joy. You were created to give your life away to something greater than you. You were created for that, right? And until you recognize that, you will not have joy, right? Because either Jesus is the king or he's not. And if he's the king, he's worthy of everything. Take up your cross and follow. And you will find joy when you give your life away to something greater. You wanna be a miserable person? To revolve everything around you. Make you the center of your world. Make you the center of the universe. Worship yourself. You say, oh, I don't worship myself. Au contraire, mon frere. What is the most popular picture of our day? The selfie. Gotta post that, right? With a filter. Is that because we don't worship ourselves? What is overeating? Self-indulgence. What is overspending? It's valuing myself so much that I have to buy this. What is uh, uh, making people feel sorry for me so that they feel, oh, poor, woe is me? It, it, it's self-centeredness. It's all about self. We worship ourselves all the time. And the whole, the whole idea is, no, no, is there's something greater than you that you were called to give your life away. It is more blessed to give than receive. Treasure, that what you treasure most, that's what's in your heart. And the Magi say, where God is, that's where I wanna be. And so they're willing to give treasures and be there and sacrifice. Why? Because he's worth it. And I would say to you this, he's worth it. What are some of y'all waiting for? Some of you've been, you've been here for years and you've been here and, and you're still not giving your life away. I mean, you come to church, which we're appreciative of, but you're not giving your life away. You kind of check a box and you go, what are you waiting for? Right? Oh, I'm just gonna get out of college and I'll do it. Oh, I'm just gonna get to retirement then I'll do it. I'll just get this one more thing's done and what are you waiting for? Right? This is, he is the source of joy. Giving your life away to him is the source of joy. Romans 12, two, for the joy set before him, what did Jesus do? He endured the cross. It's time. Today's the time. Right? So we give, we give our life away. The Magi give, they seek God. There's joy there. Here's the last thing, and we'll close with this. Is Herod fakes worship? The Magi truly worship. And this is the warning. This is kind of where it comes all around circle. We're the group of people you would expect to have joy. But here's the thing. You can fake it, and so can I. Can't we? We can be like the, the scribes. We know the prophecy. Micah 5, 2, you, O Bethlehem. I can quote Micah 5, 2, Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6. I know all the prophecy. Proximity and knowledge of the truth doesn't mean anything if you're not a worshiper. And you can fake it. You can fake it really good. Herod fakes it so good that it takes an angel showing up in a dream to say, don't go back. And I wonder how many of us, if we're honest, we're faking, right? It's a, I'm singing a song, I'm raising a hand, I'm showing up, I'm checking a box. Here's the thing, checking a box, religion does not lead to joy. It leads to misery, right? It leads to miserable, angry, frustration because it's all about what you can do for God, not what God has done for you. It's not a response of what God has done. It's what I can do for God. Don't fake. Worship at its core is about elevation. Something goes up, something goes down. And so if I'm worshiping Christ, he goes up and everything else goes down. This is why they get on their face. So when you worship, you are saying, this is the most important thing and I am not. I'm getting on my face. I'm getting in the dirt. I am debasing myself. That's why Herod's faking, because he'll never get on his face. No, I'm Herod. I am king. Some of us, you won't sing. You won't sing with, with joy. You know why? Because you're worried about the person next to you, what they're going to think. 
You stink at singing. We know this. If you didn't stink, we would ask you to be on the worship team. The whole idea, if you're worried about the person next to you, then you are not elevating Christ and debasing yourself. You are elevating yourself so that people see me and my lips moving, but really, I don't want to say anything because I might look bad. That's hairy. If you won't give yourself, your finances, your resources for the kingdom, what you're saying is, I don't want to debase myself and exalt Christ. I want to I exalt me. If you won't serve, if you're like, I don't need to serve, I don't need to do this, then what you're saying is, I'm too important to serve. I'm Herod. Not Jesus is worth it, so I'm going to serve. See, that's what worship is. It's not just singing. That's just one aspect of it. It's humbling ourselves and exalting him. And so I would say this. What are you waiting for? Don't fake it. We can fake it real easy. Proximity to the truth doesn't mean I'm worshiping, right? And so this is where you check your heart. We don't wanna be what the prophets say, my pe- these people acknowledge me with the lips, but their hearts are far from me. Worship is a lifestyle. It's I exalt Christ. My business exalt Christ. My, my school exalts Christ. My sports exalt Christ. My marriage exalts Christ. My, my this, my that, my this. I'm trying to point people to that, and that means I'm going down. And that's okay, because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and then he will exalt you in the proper time. That's what the Magi get. And we'll get to meet them one day in heaven. And what they would tell you this morning is, y'all, you want joy? Cherish the king. Love the king. Worship the king. Be satisfied in the king. Sacrifice, if necessary, for the king. Seek the king. Because that's where you're going to find joy. It's not going to be from being the president of this, getting in this fraternity, getting your law degree, getting rich, getting your house at Tybee, getting this, getting it. It's going to be from knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's it. And God wants you to have joy and he wants you to have it with him. All right? And so that's our prayer for us. Let me pray. And as we sing and as we reflect on this, it's a time for you to, to be honest. Am I faking? Am I feigning worship? Am I seeking joy in stuff and not in the fact that I am loved by God, not because of what I have done, but because of what he has done for me? And this is our time to own it and say, okay, no more. I'm getting on my face before the king. I am gonna worship like the magi and I am gonna bring my treasures. And it may not be gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but it can be your heart, which is what God wants because he don't need gold and he don't need myrrh. He don't need frankincense, but he wants your heart. So let's give it to him. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have sent this star and sent these men so that we could see their example and see what joy looks like. See, I don't have it. Joy from giving our life away for you. Joy from knowing you. Joy in worshiping you. May that be us. And when we lose sight of that, bring us back. Let us not be like Herod. Let us not be like the scribes and Pharisees who know the truth but don't know you. Uh, Let us pursue you. And if we haven't been doing that, let us start today. Thank you that that you say, if you seek you, you will find you. Uh, Because you're drawing. You're constantly drawing men to yourself. So draw us close to you. Make us more like you. And whatever is going on in the world, just the junk of the world, may we have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and all these others. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys can stand as we sing.